Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. And we'll be starting today in verse 39, going to the end of this chapter. It's a section that is one of the most powerful uh, sections in Scripture on the love of God, if not the most powerful. The love of God, which is, I would say, the most important doctrine that we need to connect emotionally with. And how do you do that? Well, Christ used stories to bring doctrinal truths uh, home to the heart. And so that's what I'm going to do today with three of them, one at the beginning, one at the middle, one in the end, to bring one of the most important truths of all home to the heart, the truth of God's love for us. This is a true story. Maybe something like this happened to you at an early age. In a fallen world, perhaps there's a child like this in us all. It's this child that Paul is addressing in our passage for today. It's a story that James Dobson tells. There is a little child who has found a permanent place in my memory, although I don't even know her name. I was waiting to catch a plane at Los Angeles International Airport, enjoying my favorite activity of people watching. But I was unprepared for the drama about to unfold. Standing near me was an old man who obviously waited for someone who should have been on the plane that arrived minutes before. He examined each face intently as the passengers filed past. I thought he seemed unusually distressed as he waited. Then I saw the little girl who stood by his side. She must have been seven years old, and she too was desperately looking for a certain face in the crowd. I have rarely seen a child more anxious than this cute little girl. She clung to the old man's arm, whom I assumed to be her grandfather. Then, as the last passengers came by, one by one, the girl began to cry silently. She was not merely disappointed in that moment. Her little heart was broken. The grandfather also appeared to be fighting back the tears. In fact, he was too upset to comfort the child, who then buried her face in the sleeve of his worn coat. Oh God, I prayed silently. What special agony are they experiencing in this hour? Was it the child's mother who abandoned her on that painful day? Did her daddy promise to come home and then change his mind? My great impulse was to throw my arms around the little girl and shield her from the awfulness of that hour. I wanted her to pour out her grief in the protection of my embrace, but I feared that my intrusion would be misunderstood. So I watched helplessly. Then the old man and the child stood silently as the passengers departed from two other planes. But the anxiety on their faces had turned to despair. Finally, they walked slowly through the terminal and toward the door. Their only sound was the snuffling of the little girl who fought to control her tears. Dobson says something here that reflects the heart of the father. When he said, my great impulse was to throw my arms around the little girl and shield her from the awfulness of that hour. I wanted her to pour out her grief in the protection of my embrace. <laughs> he couldn't do that. But Paul means to tell us that God can and God does and God will, which is why Jesus came to bring us to the arms of the Father, as he said. We come today to one of the most moving passages in all of Scripture. In fact, they're some of the most powerful words ever penned in all of literature in any language. And you, you can sum them up in five words. Five words that come directly from the heart of this passage, which itself comes directly 
from the heart of the Father, courtesy of Jesus Christ. It's like the Father's kneeling down and he's putting his hands on our shoulders and he's looking us straight in the eye and he's saying, as I've titled this message, whatever you do, don't forget this. He's saying, tribulation does not equal rejection. Tribulation does not equal rejection. And then he puts his arms around us as we pour out our grief in the protection of his embrace, which is what he wants us to do. And that's what this passage can do. Through the everlasting arms of the Father, who Moses said, has arms that are always underneath us. But so often, it doesn't sink in when God tries to get in touch with us through passages like this, because we're out of touch with ourselves, or at least sometimes this happens. Maybe your daddy changed his mind on you and never showed up, or maybe something else like that happened years ago, or maybe just recently, and so you're not going to ever again let anyone get close to you because you don't want to get hurt again. Not even God. I can relate to that. That's what happened to me when my first father died. We all react like this at one time or another. We often bury the pain of our past so that we're sometimes not even aware of it. But we bury it alive and not dead, and it can separate us both from people and from God. And these days in our broken world, there are more people like that perhaps than ever who have come from very broken and painful pasts. It's why David said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any way of pain within me. That's the literal translation. See if there is any way of pain within me, and lead me in the everlasting way. The idea there is that until, unless and until God uncovers the ways of pain within us, he can't get in touch with us to lead us in the everlasting way, ultimately the way of his love. David's saying, I'm clueless, Lord. I don't know myself like I need to know it. And so uh, you're going to need to show me the ways in which I've been hurt. And you're going to need to touch me there. Because unless you do that, I'm going to stay hung up and out of touch with you. So often we get hung up in ways of pain that keep us from his everlasting way, from his everlasting arms. And we don't even know it. That's David's point. Maybe that little girl's story, some, you know, stirred up some way of pain in you. The awfulness of some hour in your life where you need the touch of the Father. If that's the case, this passage is especially for you. Romans 8, starting in verse 35. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. That is, tribulation does not equal rejection. But unfortunately, it does, at least so it feels. What's your first reaction when stuff happens, when life doesn't go your way, or when it all comes crashing down around you or threatens to? What's your knee-jerk response when there's you know, distress or even disaster in your life, when you lose your job or your spouse or your kids or your friends uh, or your health or when your elderly parents lose their health or lose their minds and the little child in you feels like an orphan child. Or when you're just having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad life or so it feels. Maybe that's what it feels like for you right now. I would submit to you today that deep down we often react, maybe sometimes always react in the same way, at least to those things that are really hard for us in particular, given the way that we're wired. And that is like orphaned children, especially if you've already been orphaned in some way. On the outside, people react differently. But under your anger at what's happening, and maybe that's your response to things, or fear, or under the depression, or the denial, or the compulsion to control things, or the, the frenzy to fix it, or whatever. However, we tend to respond on the outside to hard times. Deep down on the inside, in our heart of hearts, many of us have similar reactions when things happen, because there's a child in us all, more often than not a wounded child, that equates tribulation with rejection. And there will be no rest for our souls until, unless and until, especially during tribulation, we connect with him, with the heavenly Father, through Christ Jesus our Savior. We come today to the, really the climactic conclusion of the first main section in the book of Romans, where we find some of the most stirring words ever written We've been looking at what you might call the four movements of what's truly a symphonic celebration here, one which celebrates the greatest uh, gifts of grace. First, our identity, then our glory, then our destiny, and now our security in verses 35 to 39. We looked at part one last week. This week will be part two. Paul sums it all up first by posing a question, a rather hard question. It's not hard intellectually. We all know the answer, but emotionally it can be. Really, in many ways, it's life's toughest question, even for those who are God's children. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Really, again, the question is this, does tribulation equal rejection? Does it? Paul's not just posing a rhetorical question here for the sake of setting up his conclusion, a question that nobody ever asked. No, because in the next verse, Paul reminds us that some very godly saints down through the centuries have asked that question. That's his point here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. 
Well, then he says in verse 36, just as it is written. What he's saying here is this, just as many have asked the same question in what has been written, that is, in the Bible. And here's one example that he gives in the Old Testament, just as it is written, for thy sake, he's quoting what someone's saying here, we are being put to death all day long. This is a complaint, and it comes from the Psalms. It's a bitter complaint. It's from Psalm 44, 22. And in the very next verse, the psalmist goes on to say, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, it feels like you've rejected us, like you've rejected us forever and this is never going to end, like we are separated from your love. The times are so terrible that God must be wrathful. He's saying tribulation does equal rejection, or so it feels. That's the context of these verses in Romans 8. Now, Given where we are in the book of Romans, we should know that this is not the case. At least in theory, in theology, we should know that. Once we go back to chapter 2 and start working our way through the book, we're going to see this again and again. Just like, uh, just as it is written. Romans 8, 5, 8, for instance. For God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. That is, God loved us. He justified us by faith and not by anything we did, which means his love is unconditional. His acceptance was not because of our performance. It's not like this, this on-again, off-again relationship. At least it's not, it's not on his part. Like every other relationship in the fallen world is like at one time or another, even most of the time in some relationships. Yet, while agreeing with this about God's love theologically, it can be awfully hard to hold on to it emotionally, especially during times of tribulation. And that can happen because of some way of pain. Paul's addressing, really, the child in us all in these verses that do feel separated from God. So let me address that child too. Maybe you've expressed or experienced some very, you know, con conditional human love. Maybe you've had to put off someone's anger, a father's anger, by always being a good little girl. Or maybe your father turned into a monster when he drank. Or maybe your parents didn't discipline you in the right way. And so God's discipline feels like rejection. You find it impossible to take a mature view of the pain by which he perfects you. You feel unloved. Your panic, you panic rather than persevering. You feel like a condemned criminal rather than a well-disciplined, a lovingly disciplined child. Maybe your parents left you at an early age, whether by death, like it was with me, or by divorce, or by desertion, or maybe they were just distant emotionally. So deep down on the inside, you're always waiting for the other foot to drop with God for God's anger to rage, or you feel he's distant, or for him to say, I'm out of here. 
For the little child, separation from an earthly parent feels like separation from God. And even as adults, it feels that way. Paul said we can continue as adults to think like a child and act like a child and reason like a child. Sometimes we can do that to our, our dying day. Paul's talking here to the child in us all, if you read that psalm carefully. The one that thinks that tribulation does equal rejection. And for that child to be touched, we need to get in touch with that child perhaps with that way of pain in your past. So, here's the second story. Maybe you can relate to this one. It's a true story by a 14-year-old whose name was Vicky uh, Karushakan. The American Girl magazine published this in a section that they used to reserve for teens, a section called By You. They titled this, that's the way life goes sometimes. Maybe deep down in you, in some way of pain, that's what you keep saying. Listen, and as you do, you might ask the Lord to search you and try you and open you up to those ways of pain so his love, as we explore it further, will touch you deeply. When I was 10, my parents got a divorce. Naturally, my father told me about it because he was my favorite. Notice she didn't say I was his favorite. Honey, I know it's been kind of bad for you these past few days, and I don't want to make it worse, but there's something I've got to tell you. Honey, your mother and I got a divorce. But Daddy, I know you don't want this, but it has to be done. Your mother and I just don't get along like we used to. I'm already packed and my plane is leaving in a half hour. But Daddy, why do you have to leave? Well, honey, your mother and I can't live together anymore. I know that, but I mean, why do you have to leave town? Oh, well, I've got someone waiting for me in New Jersey. But Daddy, will I ever see you again? Sure you will, honey. We'll work something out. But, but, but what? I mean, you'll be living in New Jersey and I'll be living here in Washington. Maybe your mother will agree to you spending two weeks in the summer and two in the winter with me. But why not more often? I don't think she'll agree to two weeks in the summer and two in the winter, much less more. Well, it can't hurt to try, can it? I know, honey, but we'll have to work that out later. My plane leaves in 20 minutes and I've got to go to the airport. Now, I'm going to get my luggage and I want you to go to your room so you don't have to watch me. And no long goodbyes either. Okay, Daddy, goodbye. Don't forget to write. I won't. Goodbye. Now go to your room. Okay, Daddy, but I don't want you to go. I know, honey, but I have to. Why? You wouldn't understand, honey. Yes, I would. No, you wouldn't. Oh, well, goodbye. Goodbye. Now go to your room. Hurry up. Okay, well, I guess that's the way life goes sometimes. Yes, honey, that's the way life goes sometimes. And then she closes. After my father walked out that door, I never heard from him again. What would that tragedy do to your theology? 
I've told you several times what my dad's death when I was six did to my theology when I was young. God became like this distant deity who had turned his back on me. Paul knew that whatever the tribulation at whatever time in our lives, our experience can so deeply color our theology, sometimes almost, you know, indelibly, especially when we're young. They, our experiences can indelibly stain our theology with the wrong answer to life's most difficult question. Does tribulation equal rejection? Well, Paul gives that question a resounding no, just as it is written. Many others have asked it, but now I'm going to write something that will answer that question. Paul's teaching here, at the end of Romans 8, that life's toughest question come at life's toughest times during tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, peril, sword, because we draw conclusions about God at those times, and in particular, that tribulation equals rejection. And the whole point of this passage is that it's really just the opposite, which moves us from life's toughest question to Paul's triumphant conclusion verse 37 he says but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us you're saying i sure don't feel that way but paul says through all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us how do we overwhelmingly conquer them through our through these times? Do we do it through our hope in the life to come, as we talked about a few weeks ago, or through our faith, a faith that's supposed to move mountains? Do we do it through perseverance and dependence and faithfulness? Paul could have said any of those things, all of which would be true because we have a part, but all of them will leave you on sinking sand without the first thing, the best thing, the greatest thing by which we overwhelmingly conquer no matter what we do. In all these things, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, through his love, period. You see, and stay with me. We're going to get a running start at something that will bring this truth home to your heart. It's not ultimately through our patience or endurance or perseverance that we overwhelmingly conquer. It is not through our hold on him, but through his hold on us. Because we are inseparably linked with his love in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us for and here it is here's what carries us through he's saying for i am convinced that neither death let this sink in this truth and then it'll come home to your heart you'll see i am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's so much here. But putting it in the context of the rest of this chapter, what's going on here is this. In all creation, there's nothing that is outside the love of God for those who come to Christ to bring them to the Father. If you're a child of God, there is no separation. It's that God's love is over and under and through it all in any situation, through every tribulation. And so far from separation, far from rejection, there is an orchestration of everything by his great compassion to assure your greater glorification forever and ever. Amen. Stay with me. He's saying, like we sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. You maybe feel like you're going down for the third time in life's stormy sea. But that's okay, because it's actually the ocean of his love. The whole point is that, like Paul, we would say, I am convinced that through it all, I'm being borne up and brought home by an ocean current of compassion that pervades all of life from which there is no separation. We overwhelmingly conquer through that, not through anything we do, through him who loved us. Through the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what is that love like? Well, here's the third story. Having opened our hearts through two stories, let's bring his love home to our hearts. You may have heard of Dave Reaver. He's an evangelist and a well-known speaker down south. He was in the Navy during the Vietnam uh, War, and on July 26th of his first year there, while they were fighting, he picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade, which is so hot when it goes off that it can even burn underwater. He said he pulled the pin, and no sooner had he drawn his arm back to throw it, the grenade exploded in his hand. He said he thought he'd been hit by a B-40 anti-tank rocket. 40% of his skin came off, and 60 pounds of his flesh went up in smoke. He looked down, and he said right in front of him on the deck was half his face. It burst into flames, blew across the deck, and was gone in the water. They life-flighted him to Saigon and then back to the States. And when he got to the hospital there, he asked uh, one of the orderlies for a mirror who foolishly gave him a mirror. And he said when he looked in this mirror, he saw half a skull glaring back at him. The other side of his face was so swollen that it was almost swollen to uh, the width of his shoulder, or so it felt. He said it sent him into the deepest depression of his life. And he even tried to take out the, uh, uh, take his life right there in the hospital by pulling, pulling out the tubes. 
When the day came for his young wife to come and see him, another woman happened to come into the room first to see the soldier who was on the bed beside him. He had no skin on his body virtually at all. By sheer willpower, Dave knew, in fact, this soldier told Dave that he had hung on long enough to see her. Well, she walked in, stood at the foot of his bed, took off her wedding ring, placed it between his charred feet, and he said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. And out she went. Dave said he was thinking this. He's from the South, so he had a Southern accent. Oh my, my wife will walk in. She'll take one look at me and that little high school sweetheart of mine will finish off this relationship. Would tribulation equal rejection? Well, the door finally opened and in she came. And he said she came swinging through that door and she walked over and she read the chart on his bed and read the tag on his arm and make sure they matched and then convinced that he was her husband, she bent down and kissed his face, which was the part of his body that was burnt the worst. And then she looked him straight in his good eye and she said, I just want you to know I love you. Welcome home, Davy. Which was her pet name for him. He looked at her and said, I am sorry, sweetheart. Why are you sorry? Because I can't ever look good for you again. To which she said this, Aw, oh, Davy, you never were that good looking anyhow. And then he said, she kissed me with the kiss of life. And that's all I needed. That's all I needed. And you know something? <laughs> that's all you need. That's all I need. That's all any of us need. And that's what we've got through Jesus Christ our Savior who kissed us with the kiss of life while we were children of wrath, while we were sons of disobedience, when we were without hope in the world, and he brought us to the arms of the Father, to the Father who's now bearing us up and bring us, bringing us home in the ocean of his love, who is over all, Paul says, and in all, and through all in all, turning it all into a greater good for a greater glory for all eternity as he conforms us to the image of his son. Of his son who's done it all. So all we need is to know it by the Spirit, through faith in the truth, through faith in the truth of his great compassion.
from which there is no separation. Because of which, as Paul teed it up way back at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, because of that compassion, there is now therefore no condemnation, no rejection in the slightest for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.